talk about linguistics for a moment. Um, I'm going to be a little bit nerdy. I watched like four TED Talks on linguistics, so I consider myself an expert. I dated a girl who once was into linguistics, so transitively I must be into it, right? Um, I only speak one language. I only speak English. Um, I dabble in biblical Greek, which is pretty pointless unless you're a pastor. But by and large, I really only speak one language. Just like the Kuk Tyor people of Aboriginal Australia. And uh, they speak a language that's very different from English. They don't have their root, their, their linguistical roots are completely autonomous, meaning that, uh, you know, French and Spanish, if you know French, uh, you'll know that you can speak some Spanish, or if you know Italian especially, you can speak some Spanish. They have a similar root. Um, same thing with, like, Norwegian and Swedish and, and, and different places. There, there are linguistic groups. The Kuktaior are completely separate. They're completely separate. And uh, so they're really interesting to me because their language identifies them. It actually changes their brains to, to uh, see the world differently than Westerners or really actually anybody else that's not part of the Kuktaior tribe. And that's interesting to me because we're talking about languages this morning. Both of our lectionary texts, both the one from Acts and the one from uh, Genesis, talk about, and the season of Pentecost, it's the Sunday, it's Pentecost Sunday, they talk about speaking in other languages. And so I was thinking, well, why would God do this? Right? Because I'm kind of dissatisfied with the answer that uh, the people were going to somehow build a tower out of bricks to heaven. In fact, the biblical text points to that's probably not true. Uh, there's a little slight in there for anybody who understands ancient architecture when it says that uh, they were building with bricks that was, was hardened in tar as mortar. That's, that's actually kind of a jab at their culture. They said they didn't even know how to build with stone. They weren't very smart. They weren't architectural engineering masterminds. And so I started thinking about languages and, and uh and the Kuktaior stuck out to me because their language, like I said, it's isolated. But what the, the most interesting thing about it to me is that according to this researcher who's now studying this, that they only perceive the world, because, because their language is structured about this, they only perceive the world in cardinal directions. Okay? So there's no left and right. There's no up and down. Only cardinal directions, north, south, east, and west. And so we happen to be a little east of West Avenue, so it's really easy to orient yourself in this room. You just go, oh, that's west over there, West Avenue, and it is west of us. It's pretty easy. But imagine that your whole life was structured on this. So not just which way is West Avenue, oh, it's west, but right now, my right leg in English would be my west leg. My left leg would be my east leg. And if I turned around, now my left leg is my west leg. They view themselves completely in the context as a part of the world. Their world is not defined by their place in the world. Their world is defined by the world. And what happens to these people after speaking a language that only uses cardinal directions is that they're incredibly well-oriented, like insanely well-oriented, so well-oriented, in fact, that if they, that, that, that there's nobody who's gotten lost from this tribe in the last 100 years, not a single person, and they let five-year-olds completely go off on their own and they never get lost because they can stay completely oriented because they understand their place in the world. Incredibly well-oriented. In fact, 
there are people who have tried to use biological reasons for humans being poorly oriented, like we don't have magnets in our beaks. It's actually not true. They've disproved all of that, um, like all the animal science that humans can be just as well oriented as, as birds if we used our language properly. Same thing can be true of like a language like Russian. They perceive of colors in ways, they, they're, young kids in Russia can identify colors much more easily than young kids in English-speaking countries because Russia, uh, Russian identifies more colors than just the primary colors. Light blue and dark blue are different colors in Russian, and so they understand color a lot better than us. Or how many times have we heard about the, uh, have you ever heard Eskimos have 50 words for snow, right? Have you ever heard that? They actually have more words for sea ice. The Inuit people have uh, over 100 words, different words for sea ice. Language, these examples, and, and I could give you a language from every single culture, language shapes your brain. And so when we come to the biblical text, now knowing what we know about language, because language is a pretty recent study, actually. Uh, we haven't studied languages with multiple intelligences because uh, unfortunately, we tend to be pretty prideful and we say, well, our language is the best, so what's the point in studying other languages? But we're not doing that anymore. We're actually studying these other languages, and, it's, and we're learning that uh, having a second language makes you much smarter, makes you perceive the world, makes you much more even-keeled. People who speak more than one language are uh, generally able to hold and balance tension more, which is really important when you go to like, the biblical text and there's uh, potential contradictions there. You go, oh, wow, if there's contradictions, how can I hold this intention? Well, if you speak only one language, it's probably going to be hard for you. You're going to be a black and white thinker. But if you speak more than one language, you're actually probably, especially if those languages are from different groups, you're probably going to be able to hold those intention better. And so we go to this story of the Tower of Babel. And the first thing that this is one of the first stories where humanity is identified. Humanity is kind of identified in the book of, uh, in the, earlier in Genesis with Noah, but you still have a hero. Noah's the hero. This is the first time where there's no hero. There's no named person. We're just expected to see this as humanity. And it says humanity spoke one language. And they go, let us make for ourselves or let us build a monument to ourselves. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's stay where we are. Let's urbanize. Let's focus on engineering. Let's focus on ourselves. Let's stop viewing the world. And what's happening here in this story is that you immediately see there's something that God does not like about this culture. He goes, this is not my intended plan. And so if we look back at the biblical text, we say, this is what they say, they say, look, they're all united, they all speak the same language, nothing will be impossible for them. That's what God says. Actually, the, the actual uh, uh, Hebrew here says, um, Nothing that they will devise will be withheld from them. They'll be able to do anything they think of. But anything that they don't think of, they can't do. Okay, so it's not, God, God's not scared of these people. You think that their tower was as big as a Sears tower? Probably not. Most likely, their brick tower did not have the same architectural marvel as the steel structure of the Sears tower, which is much smaller than other buildings now. And we actually fly planes way higher than that and we haven't hit God yet. I mean, what about when we blast rockets into outer space? I mean, have we, did we ever run into God? Clearly, God is not worried about them somehow accidentally cracking heaven with their tower. God is saying, look, there's actually something that you're settling for in this narrative. I want you to hear that. He says, you're actually settling for something. 
said, I created with a specific plan, and you're settling for less than that plan. And I want to point out to you that this is not the first time in the biblical text. This is the story of the biblical text. It's just identified really early on as diversification, not choosing not to diversify yourself is settling for less. But Adam and Eve, they settled for less. They were given everything and they settled for less. The people during Noah's time, they were, they were given an earth to inhabit and they chose to rebel against God. They settled for less. The, the people over and over, Abraham settles for less when he chooses not to trust God's covenant. And you could go throughout the entire, basically every character in the Bible is a character that settles for less than God's plan. So it's not new information. But I think that it's important that if we're going to say that they're settling for less than God's desired plan, that we have to say in Genesis 11 that diversity must then therefore be God's desired plan for humanity. We're going to get there in a moment, but I want you just to have the framework going forward. I'm going to get to the linguistic stuff here in a moment that I started with, but understand that when God says in Genesis 1.26, says, or 27, he says, God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then he tells them in Genesis 1.28, go, go out into all nations. I'm sorry, that was a great commission. I, I put the wrong scripture up. He says to them, uh, hang on for it. Got to remember it. He says, Go populate, populate the earth and govern it. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1, 28. And so understand that when God makes that first central command, go out into the earth, multiply, literally have babies. There's not like a, another way to view that. Have children and go out into the world what the people of Babel have done is a direct oppositional defiance to that command. It says, go out into the world, fill the earth. And they said, no, we like this part of the earth and we're going to stay right here. So they're in direct opposition. So God says, okay, perhaps if diversity is God's desired plan, then what happens at Babel when he, when he confuses their language is actually God forcing humanity not to settle for less. He's, he's not satisfied that humanity will only be able to do things that they devise because whatever they're going to devise in their monocultural space is not going to be fully present, fully in, encompassing of who God is. And so he, he, he splits up their languages. I, I, I don't know whether you take this story... Uh, like metaphorically or whether you view it literally or uh, however you view the story of Genesis 11, un I, I, believe, I, I have this picture in my head that, that at least one of the people that was sent out must have gone to Aboriginal Australia with that language and laid down the framework for the Kuktaior people. Perhaps when God scatters the languages, he actually implants in them different purposes for their languages to full, more fully recognize who God is. And so that's actually important for us to remember because when we come into these places that tend to be generally monocultural, perhaps, follow me here, 
perhaps we're actually not living into everything that God is calling us to be a part of. That's actually why I don't think it's helpful for me to preach 52 weeks a year. I, I, you might like that. You might like my preaching. Hopefully you'd, you wouldn't be here if you didn't at least like it a little. Maybe you are. Maybe you're just like waiting for me to like move out. But, but it's not actually helpful for me to preach 52 weeks out of the year because it, it withholds you to only listening to one theological framework. And so that's why it's important that we, that we bring in people like Cheryl Lynn on occasion and Alicia and, and have Stephanie get up and preach at times because they actually, the, the Bible is filled with women and in my space as a man, I've never been a woman. I don't plan to ever be a woman. And so if I'm going to try and interpret how women are viewed in the Bible, I probably need to offer that up to somebody who actually has had that experience, and the, the Bible's full of women. And so we, when we, maybe we need to actually get out there and put ourselves in spaces that are uncomfortable, like the Sankofa journey that we're sending people on this year, because it forces us, it breaks us of this idea that we're only a part of this small thing. See, I, I think that what's really important in understanding that diversity is God's desired plan for humanity is that this is, this is laid down in Genesis 1, 28, when he says, go fill the earth and subdue it. It's reaffirmed in Genesis 11, when the people go, we're not going to do that. And then God goes, yeah, actually, you have to do that. I'm going to force you to do that. And then it's reaffirmed in Acts 2. I want you to think about it for a moment. In Acts 2, what happens? There's a group of people... They're the disciples, they're from Galilee, and God offers to them, he says, hey, everyone on earth is now going to speak Aramaic so that you can convince them of the truth of the... No, he doesn't. He says, you're going to go speak every language. He doesn't undo Babel. He reinterprets Babel. He doesn't make everybody speak one language again so people can hear about Jesus. He says, no, actually, it's important for my people, for the people who know the story, to be gifted with the gift of tongues so that they can spread this message to people who would never have heard it. Otherwise, likely, if this was not done in the time and space, we would have no Bible. The Bible is translated. There's a person, the people who wrote down the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they spoke Aramaic, which is what Jesus spoke, and then they wrote down what he wrote, what he said in Aramaic, in Greek. They were multilingual. Automatically, they had to be in order to even record the Bible. So where am I going with this? Because it's unclear at this point. Where am I going with this? I think that we're actually sometimes, in our own spaces of comfort, we fail to live out God's desired plan for humanity. It's way easier to stay in monocultural spaces where you feel comfortable, way easier than to put yourself in multicultural or intercultural spaces where you don't. I think that we're very similar to the people of Babel. We're like, I want you to think now about some of the largest, most grand churches in the United States. They tend to be lowest common denominator, single culture churches. Because they say, look, 
It's actually, if we, if we can just kind of present a, a, a vanilla culture, then we're not going to offend anyone and we can grow really fast. It's not a good growth model to operate in multicultural spaces where everybody is a little uncomfortable. Because a lot of people, they work all week and then they come to church and then they go, yeah, but I, I was forced to be uncomfortable in spaces at work. I was forced to be, so when I'm going to have a, when I'm going to be voluntary about where I go, I'm going to choose to be voluntary in a place where I'm going to be comfortable. I want to offer this morning that that might be a direct, indirect defiance to God's commands, both in Genesis 1, 28 or 29, whichever verse that is, again reaffirmed in Genesis 11 and then solidified in, Genesis, in Acts 2. And if you want more evidence of this, I want you to think about the writers of the Bible generally. Diversity not only is a command in the first chapter of the Bible, Jesus lives it out in the people that he associates with. We have, in a monocultural space of the ancient world, a, a society dominated by Roman pantheon worship, we have women, who are not even full citizens, as apostles and church planters forcing diversity where it had not been before. We have people of color. Direct, I mean, some of the earliest, we have sexual minorities. One of the first people who we encounter in the book of Acts is an Ethiopian, not European or Mediterranean, an Ethiopian eunuch, sexual minority. We have slaves, like Phile or Onesimus, we have marginalized ethnic groups. We hear about that in Acts 3 and Acts 4 with the, 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 the Gentile widows not being cared for. The poor, Roman soldiers are included. Former Pharisees are included. Crazy mystics who have long visions are included. We're actually set up to be a church that's diverse. And the fact that we're not diverse, not, not us, I'm talking about Big C. Remember, we're talking about Big C here. We're just product. We're just a product. The fact that, as Martin Luther King once said, the church, the, the, the Sunday morning hour is the most segregated hour in American society. The fact that that is true is actually flies in the face of the Genesis 11 text. It proves that we are in the same rut that they were in. That we might laugh at them and go, look how foolish they were to build a tower to heaven. But basically, we're trying to do the same thing. Because it's much easier to be in monocultural spaces than multicultural spaces. And I want to ask kind of a hard question. What if one of the main reasons that the American church is falling apart, while the global southeastern church is thriving, especially in places where there are systems like the caste system, where diversity is a, the diversity in Christianity in India is actually uh, in direct opposition to the governmental state. They have forced segregation in India, and the church speaks against that segregation. And so church leaders, including a Hindustani covenant church pastor, like a month ago, if you don't know what's going on in, e in India right now, it's a political nightmare for Christians. He was murdered. He was lynched. Because what he spoke out against 
What he spoke in favor of was integration when their entire system was set up for segregation. This is actually the church's influence in the world. This whole concept of birds like a feather flock together, this is a natural human outpouring that we create to set up systems of power and privilege. But the church, from its very, very early stages, the very earliest command in Genesis, the first commandment God ever gives humanity, reaffirmed the first commandment that God ever solidifies through a second time telling that commandment in Genesis 11. The church is actually supposed to be the place that changes society to be, we should be ahead of the curve, not behind the curve. And so perhaps the reason that Christianity in the West is falling apart and Christianity in the global East and South is thriving is because we forgot that the church was supposed to be defining and ahead of culture. We're fighting culture wars on things that society is way ahead of you're actually way more likely to encounter people today of different races, of different perspectives in the workplace, a place where historically monocultural, diver or there's been a lack of diversity. You're more likely to encounter diversity in a school system, which is another place where people tend to segregate themselves, than you are in a church. In fact, there's uh, Michael Emerson, who's the provost of North Park, he writes uh, in one of his books, he says, it would be harder to achieve the level of segregation that exists in the church. It would, be, it would be almost statistically impossible to achieve the level of segregation that exists in the church even if there was one head of the church, an individual person, and their goal was to keep it segregated. We're actually, we naturally segregate more than the rest of society. And so, perhaps this is one of the reasons why the church is falling apart. I want to offer that it might be. And so what do we do about it? Well, I think that we need to stop thinking of people as in and out. The people out there and the people in here. We need to start thinking about the church as everybody's in. Everybody's in whether they want to be or not. Everybody gets a seat at the table because that's the story of Pentecost. The story of Pentecost is that the good news is so radically important that it was translated into every language across the face of the earth so that God's glory could actually be lifted up. Because I want you to follow here, perhaps I'm not the one to lead you in an orienteering course if we get lost in the wilderness. I did receive the orienteering badge before dropping out of Boy Scouts. I did. It took me three tries, but I did. But perhaps, if we had a person who was from the Kuktaior tribe here, even though they don't have a system of counting in the Kuktaior tribe, they literally could not be our financial treasurer because they do not count. Perhaps if we got lost in the wilderness, we needed to lay down all of our collective thoughts on how to get out at the feet of the person who's from a culture that has not been lost in 100 years. Perhaps when it comes to navigating sea ice, by the way, when Westerners do this, we get movies like Titanic, we should probably 
Look to the Inuit people who don't have a very good language system for understanding economics because they only use trade and barter systems. They don't use money systems. They don't have a word for money. They probably cannot be our financial secretary or treasurer or help us craft a budget, but if we were on a boat in the middle of the Antarctic, there would probably be no other person who we wish should be having captain the ship because they have different words for thick ice and thin ice and they're able to identify it from a quarter mile off. They have different words for ice that stays all summer long, which is ice that you cannot take a boat through, regardless how big the boat is. And it goes way beyond that. Maybe we need to be listening to marginalized communities who have been historically told that they, have, that they do not add value to, the, to our society as people who are uniquely intelligent to lead us through challenges that we don't and we cannot overcome. I want you to pray with me, church, that there's actually goodness that goes way beyond just looking better as a church. That actually we will be a better church individually and corporately if we start listening to voices of people who have historically not been at the table. We just go around and around and around otherwise. We keep making the same mistakes. So I want you to pray with me this morning so you guys can come up. Because as long as we remain monocultural, we're going to remain in the same problems that we've always had. As long as we lean into diversity, and by the way, when I say diversity, I mean actually giving people a seat at the table to lead not saying everyone is welcome here as long as you theologically think like we do and like the same music that we like and dress the way that we dress. Until we are willing to say, actually, I might not be right about everything. I might not be the one to lead us in an orienteering course. I might not be the one to tell you how to solve the problems of racial injustice in this country because historically, I've been part of the problem, not the solution. Until we're able to do that and lay that down at the foot of the cross and just say, we need more people of different backgrounds leading, we'll just keep getting caught. So pray with me, church, this Pentecost Sunday that the mission of God cannot be accomplished only out there. That it's not all those non-believers out there that would hear this message. But that it would actually be that us in here would have that diversifying fire, a fire that forces us to want to speak new languages, to get a new perspective in the world lit in the core of our souls. Because church, as long as we remain monocultural, we just remain tower-building heretics making a name for ourselves. I invite you into a time of prayer as they begin to sing the next song. I want you to think of all of the ways in which others have taught you more about God than you might have ever thought possible. There are so many times when we don't fully do 
what we're called to do because we don't have the mental framework to accomplish it. I want you to think of the ways in which people from other cultures, cultures not your own, have opened your perspectives and horizons to seeing that God will not be limited and held. God will not be limited and held in one language. I want you to think of times perhaps that you've been frustrated that you're having a hard time communicating with somebody. Perhaps that frustration was your own comfort. Perhaps if you had leaned into that miscommunication, you might have learned something about God in that interaction that you would have, your brain is not set up to learn. I want you to think of times that you've not leaned in to discomfort and missed out on what God was doing in your life. I want you to think just for a moment let it be a splinter in your mind that there might be somebody who has a different strength than you do that you will literally never be able to have and without that person from that framework you will never be able to experience God in that way and lament it. Place yourself, church, in the story of Scripture. A story that says God cares how many words for sea ice the Inuit people of Alaska and Russia have because to God he created sea ice as a reflection of his glory. And if that's the case, perhaps you and I and all other English speakers in the world have been missing out. Pray all these things in your name, Jesus, the one who destroyed our monocultural framework by doing exactly what you thought, what we thought you would not do. Amen.